Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Women in the Word. We're so glad that you're here. It's so good to see all of you here tonight. I'm Cameron Ward. I have the great joy of being part of our teaching team. And tonight, we're going to be in John 21. And so if you have closed your Bibles, go ahead and open them back up to John 21, because that is where we're spending most of our time. So as we have gone through different stories this summer uh, in our series, Our Favorite Stories, you're probably wondering if you missed our poll of what our favorite stories are when we were going to ask all of you what your favorite stories are. Uh, maybe the one that we're looking at tonight isn't your favorite, but I'll tell you why it is mine. Because I, like Peter, have blown it. <laughs> I have had... I have done things that I thought I would never do. I have faced the consequences of my sin that were much more devastating than I ever bargained for. And I have known the grace and the mercy of Jesus towards me. I have known that I cannot outpace his mercy towards me, no matter how fast I ran in the other direction. And his mercy and his grace have changed my life. I was not just good, and then Christ made me better. I was dead, and he made me alive. And so that is the story that we see here tonight. And that's why this is my favorite one. In the study questions, we look back over previous chapters to see where we're situated in the broader context of John's gospel. And so I hope that you picked up on a couple of things. One, that this is after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And in John 18, Peter denies Jesus three times. While Jesus is on trial, Peter says, I'm I don't know Jesus. I never knew that man after he'd said he would never do such a thing. And just so we're all on the same page, let's look at John 18 together. If you just want to turn back to John 18, we're going to start in verse 15. So John 18, verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And then we're going to say in the same chapter, just drop down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Other gospels tell us that when that rooster crowed, Peter remembered Jesus' words, and he ran away and wept. I really cannot imagine the weight of this moment for Peter. I imagine that this is something he played over and over and over again for the days and weeks to come. 
he had denied Jesus, his friend, his savior. He knows who he is. I imagine this is a moment that kept him up for a long time. Three times in John 18, someone asks Peter if he knows Jesus, and three times he says no. And in John 21, where we're going to be tonight, Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter gets to give his response. Let's look at John 21, 1 through 19 again together, and I'm going to read it straight through for us. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. Seems like they got the short end of the stick here. <laughs> for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself <clears throat> and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what, by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So as we turn our attention to John 21 tonight, 
I hope that we will be able to feel the tender gaze of Jesus on Peter's face and on our own faces, downcast they may be because of shame and because of the mistakes that we've made, the places that we feel like we have totally blown it. I know that the vast majority of us are walking in here with some level of shame weighing us down. There are things we've done that we never thought we would do. Sin has taken us to places we never thought it would, or we've done something again that we said we would never do again. There are things that we do and that we fail to do that we are well aware of, and we can tend to wear that shame like a heavy cloak. You might feel like Peter in this story, or you may be walking with someone who feels like Peter in this story. And you are seeing the cracks in their lives, and they are devastated by the cracks of their lives. And so I hope that this will be an opportunity for you to speak the grace of God back into their lives and to witness the healing mercy of Jesus. I want us to leave the clear understanding of what following Jesus costs, because it is costly. It is a great joy, and it is a privilege to follow Jesus. We possess nothing of greater value than Christ himself. And Jesus never was shy about how much it would cost to follow him during his ministry on earth, and he's not shy about it with Peter. The grace and mercy of Jesus changes the course of Peter's life. And for those of us who know him, it has changed us too. So verses 1 through 3 set the scene for us. The disciples are back in their hometown by the Sea of Tiberias, also called the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing. And so we know that this is roughly 10 to 14 days after the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus was crucified on Passover and then spent three days in the tomb, was resurrected, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread would have been happening in Jerusalem for that week after his crucifixion and resurrection. And the disciples would have stayed in Jerusalem for that event. They were very good Jews. And so once that was over, they would have gone back up to Galilee, and that would have taken several days on foot. So here they are, and they're back home fishing just two weeks after Jesus is resurrected, which seems odd, doesn't it? Even if you like to fish, and I don't. I I don't think... Well, I didn't think that I would just go back to doing what I'd always done. I mean, they have witnessed the resurrected Christ, and they go fishing. I remember the first Broadway show I ever saw in New York City, and it was a spectacle. I was enamored by it. The lights and the music and the costumes and the comedic timing, even the theater was beautiful. All of it was just awe-inspiring. And I talked about it for days. I sang those songs for months. And it was just a show. I cannot imagine seeing the resurrected Jesus and not talking about it. But I think that the disciples just aren't quite sure what to do with themselves. I think that they just aren't sure. What does the resurrection really change for us? Okay, he is who he says he is. But why am I any different because of it? Why would my life look any different? So in verse 4, after the disciples have been out all night fishing and they haven't caught anything, Jesus appears to them on the shore. 
But the text tells us that the disciples did not know it was him. Even when he says, children, do you have any fish? They don't recognize it's him. It's only once they cast their nets on the other side of the boat at his instruction and pull the nets up full of fish that they think, oh, this must be Jesus standing there. There are a couple of reasons that I think the disciples may not have recognized him. We see at other places in scripture where God, for whatever reason, blinds people to the identity of Jesus. That could certainly be what's happening here is that at this moment, they just don't recognize him. But maybe they just aren't close enough. The sun is still coming up. It's still dark. It says they're not far from shore, but they're not on shore. I don't know how good their eyesight was. Maybe they just didn't realize it was him. But when Jesus tells them to pull, to cast the nets on the other side, and suddenly they're bursting with fish, it's like it jogs their memories. Because Jesus had done something like this in Luke 5, where they'd been out all night fishing, and Jesus shows up and tells them what to do, and suddenly they have fish. Either way, John, who wrote this gospel account for us, recognizes who it is on the shore, and he says, it is the Lord to Peter. And I think it's interesting here that he appeals to Jesus's lordship. He is not just saying that's a man who looks like Jesus, or that is Jesus the historical, what am I saying, the historical character. That is Jesus the Christ. That is Jesus the Messiah. He is making a declaration that this person who stands on the shore is who he says he is. And his statement is all that it takes for Peter to throw himself into the sea to get to Jesus. I hope you had good discussion at your tables about this scene because it is one that has really stuck with me as I've studied. Peter putting on that outer garment, throwing himself into the sea, flailing and splashing through the water to get to Jesus crawling on shore. His robe is probably waterlogged, and it doesn't tell us what Peter does when he gets to the shore, but do you notice what's odd about what Jesus is up to? Did you catch that Jesus has made a fire and has fish already on it, and then he tells the disciples to bring their fish? So where did he get this fish? Where did he get this bread? How did he just whip that up out of nowhere? I have looked high and low for an explanation on this because it really puzzled me. And certainly Jesus can do whatever he wants. He is God. So that was a viable option for me. But I actually think that asking how Jesus does this misses what the text is trying to do. I think the text is wanting us to ask, why would Jesus already have fish on the fire? Why would he already have it ready for them? Because he's their provider. He doesn't need what they can bring. He provides it. And like the fish on the fire, he provides what they need in that moment. They're probably pretty hungry. And so he provides breakfast for them. He meets their immediate needs. And like the fish in the nets, the fish that are in the nets because of him, they didn't catch those fish. He caught the fish, really. He provides the fruit of their labor. And that reminds me of how God does not just provide for us day to day. Although he certainly does. He knows what we need. 
every day, every moment, every hour, but he also provides the fruit of our labor. We often think that we are self-sufficient and powerful and skilled and that we are able to bring about fruit in our lives. But really, God is the one who provides the fruit. No matter where you are, you have a sphere of influence that you can share the gospel, that you can reach people for Christ. And there are people in my own life, and I'm sure in yours, that you've been praying for for years, that you've been trying to have a conversation about the Lord with for months and months and months, whose hearts seem hard and the situation seems hopeless. There are circumstances that seem like God could never use. And he'll never redeem, and it's just too complicated. And if only he knew how complicated it was, he would give up too. But God can, and he will bring the fruit if he does bring fruit. And I don't know if he will. There are situations in my life that I look at and I say, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do and if you're going to do anything, but maybe the fruit you're going to produce is in me. And maybe that's enough. I don't know, but I can trust you to provide the fruit of my labor. So as we move on to verse 11, it tells us that there are 153 fish in the net. And I don't want to overprescribe meaning to numbers in the Bible, but I thought that was the oddest detail <laughs> John could have included. And who counted them? You know, I mean, it's just, maybe he counted them and that's why he had to include it. He said it took too long. Uh, <laughs> So there were actually several ideas that theologians have about why 153 fish in the net is included in this story for us. But there are two of them that I think are equally viable. So first, one theologian points out that 153 is a number that is representative of all the fish in the Sea of Galilee. And so by 153 fish being in the net, that represents a fullness of what Christ will bring to himself. And the net is representative of the church. And so the church has a fullness that Christ will bring about and all people of all nations and all tribes and all tongues will be drawn to Christ. We know this from scripture. And the net, that's the church, is strong enough and big enough to fit all of them. So I think that could be one of the things that's happening here. The second option might seem less impressive, but I think it's just as likely. And that's that John included this detail as a purely historical detail that would give him credibility as an eyewitness to this event. So in the time he was writing this, and even still for us today, the credibility of John's witness is directly tied to him being present for these things. If he did not see what he has written in his gospel account, it all falls flat. Him being there is very important for the credibility of his account. And we know, because John wrote in John 1 and in John 20, that he's writing so that his readers will know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and have life in him. The stakes are high for John. And so he wants his readers to know, I was there, this really happened. I think that either of these options work here because we're going to see Jesus tell Peter about the church in verses 15 through 19, which makes the church as a net theory fit. And the eyewitness account idea fits too because when we look at verses 12 through 14, 
they tell us the disciples knew this was the resurrected Jesus. They did not need to ask. But John includes these details to affirm his credibility as an eyewitness and to affirm the reality of Jesus' bodily resurrection. So for most of us, when we read these stories, we kind of read them through a lens of already believing. We're not doing a lot of questioning of, is this real? Did this really happen? Some of us are, but for most of us in this room, we're not. But for John's original audience, that was very much the question they were asking when they were reading these accounts. They did not already believe there was lots of speculation that maybe Jesus was not actually raised from the dead, that his followers had made up rumors, that maybe they had hallucinated, that this was all just a myth. And so when John tells us that Jesus sat by a fire and ate with them, and there were 153 fish in the net, he's saying, this is real. It is as real as me and you are. Ghosts can't sit by fires. They can't eat. This is real. This man is exactly who he says he is. This is the Messiah. So nearly every year when I was growing up, my dad and brother and I would make our trip from North Carolina to South Texas to go hunting. And it was great fun. It was about a week. And one year in particular, my mom came with us. She was not at all a hunter. And I think that she was probably just as confused about why she was there as we were. Uh, because she would just sit in the cabin with nothing to do while we went hunting. But we were going to be cutting our hunting trip short and going back to San Antonio to celebrate her 50th birthday. And she knew about all of this. She was on board with all of it. What she did not know was that my dad had arranged for my two older sisters to also fly in to celebrate her birthday. And they were going to be joining us on the ranch. So this was a big feat to pull off. I mean, there were a lot of logistics. One of them was coming from North Carolina. One of them was coming from Mississippi. They had to land at the same time, get the rental car. There were lots of details. And so there was this huge window, about two hours probably, that we thought they might be arriving at the ranch. But we didn't have cell phone service out there. And so we were just waiting for them to get there and hoping that she would stay corralled in the house long enough <laughs> Uh, for, for us to not blow the surprise. So finally, probably on our seventh round of walking through the house and showing her all the mounts that she was very interested in, uh, we hear their car pull up. And so it's like that exhale, like, okay, this is happening, and it's going to be so good. All of her kids are here. She's going to be thrilled. So we walk her out of the house, out of the back of the house, and my sisters are standing in the living room in the front, and we turn, and she lays eyes on them, and then turns to my dad and says, well, what are they doing here? <laughs> and she was happy to see them, but she just couldn't really place them. We're in the middle of nowhere, South Texas, and there are her two daughters who have never seen the inside of a deer blind, and they're just on this ranch. It was shocking for her. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. I think that the disciples are stunned to see Jesus in Galilee when he was just in Jerusalem. He's just been resurrected, and they're shell-shocked by it. And just like I can tell you where my mom stood in the room, where my sisters were in the room, even what my mom was wearing, those details are burned into my mind. Why? Because I was there. 
because this was a big moment. Not quite as big as maybe we'd hoped, but it was a big moment. And I think that's part of what John is including for us here. He's saying, yeah, I saw these things. This is real. You can go to the bank with this. Jesus is who he says he is. And we can trust that Jesus is who he says he is. Our Savior, our provider, and as we're going to see in this next section, Jesus is our rock and our gentle shepherd. So let's move on to look at this next section. Verses 15 through 19 zoom in on Peter and Jesus, which is really the interaction that this entire passage has been building towards. So Jesus waits until they finish breakfast, and then he turns and says to Peter in verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So I wonder when I was studying this, what are the these that Jesus is talking about? Does he motion to the nets and the boats and the sea around them and say, do you love me more than you love this stuff, more than you love your life and your career and what you've always known? Or is he asking if he loves him more than the other disciples love him? And Jesus asks this, but doesn't really get a straight answer from Peter. Peter makes no comparison in his answers. He just says, Lord, you know that I love you. But when I look at all of Peter's life and that he was always the first to act and first to speak, and if we were handing out superlatives, he would be most likely to put his foot in his mouth. I think it's more likely that Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? The other disciples probably knew at this point that Jesus, I'm sorry, that Peter had denied Jesus on the night of his crucifixion. And so I bet that Peter feels every eye on him at this point. If you've ever played that game hot seat where you sit in a chair and get pelted with questions and you have to answer them, it feels very exposing most of the time. That's probably how Peter felt here. But Jesus is not asking Peter to embarrass him or to cast shame on him. He's not asking Peter these questions to make a mockery of him. In Peter's answer, you can feel his growing exasperation. The text even tells us that by the third time Jesus asks him, he is grieved. And there is really no tone of self-righteousness in his responses. He does not appeal to the depth of his love or to his devotion to Jesus. He appeals to Jesus' knowledge. It's like he's saying, you know, you know that I failed you miserably, and you know that I love you. And we can make this same appeal. No matter how we've blown it or how we've messed up, we can be sure that when the gaze of Jesus falls on our faces, he is not trying to humiliate us just for the sake of humiliation. He is lovingly exposing us to bring about restoration and our sanctification, and we can trust the work that he is doing, even with the most painful parts of our stories, even with the things that we wish no one knew about us and we wish we'd never done. Those are the places that he exposes, and he exposes them to his mercy, not his condemnation. In John 18, we saw Peter deny Jesus how many times? Three. And in John 21, how many times does Peter get to affirm his love for Jesus? Yeah. Peter 
totally betrays Jesus. He totally denied Jesus. And Jesus totally restores Peter. One theologian put it this way. Jesus, in his gracious forgiveness, gave Peter the chance to wipe out the memory of the threefold denial by a threefold declaration of love. And just think about the mercy of this moment here. In John 18, Peter stood around a fire, smoke billowing, flames dancing, wood cracking and shifting. And three times he said, oh, I don't know Jesus. I, no, I wasn't with him. And in John 21, Peter sits around a fire, smoke billowing, flames dancing, wood cracking and shifting. And three times he says, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter may have thought he'd totally decimated any shot he ever had of being used by God. Not just that part of his story, but he himself probably felt like he was utterly disqualified. But Jesus restores and establishes Peter. And who's the more powerful player here? Which one of these two people has more power? It's Jesus. He gets the final say. He is the one who gets to say what Peter's life will be. What he says goes. And so in the places that we feel like we've blown it, that same grace of Jesus extends to us. He offers it to us. When I was in, a freshman in college, over the course of one weekend, it didn't take me very long, I totally ruined one of the dearest relationships I had in my life at that time. And it all kind of went up in smoke while I happened to be home that weekend. And I realized that when I got back to school on Monday, I was walking into a mess. I had deeply wounded this person, and I was, frankly, devastated. And on Sunday, I sat through a church service. I shook like a leaf through the whole thing because after lunch, I was going to have to get on a plane and go back to school and face the person I'd hurt. And a friend of mine turned to me afterwards and she said, Cameron, are you okay? I guess she had noticed me like this the whole time, <laughs> shaking uncontrollably. And so I just told her what happened. I didn't really want to tell her. I didn't want anyone to know. But I was so desperate to just say it out loud, to get it off my chest. So I just told her what I'd done and what a mess I'd created. And I really thought that her response was going to be, wow, yeah, that's a mess. Good luck. But instead, she looked me dead in my eyes, and she said, Cameron, you cannot ruin God's plan for your life. You are not powerful enough, and your sin is not ugly enough to thwart his purposes for you. Her words did very little to make amends with that person when I got back to school. It didn't even really lighten the sense of dread that I felt on the plane ride back. But it has been a refrain that has rung in my ears for years. Because I was consumed with anxiety and shame and feeling like I had totally blown it. And she spoke life and purpose and truth back to me. And that's much like what Jesus does for Peter here. But Jesus does not just want Peter's right answers. He's not just satisfied with him saying, Yes, I love you. 
Jesus wants Peter's submitted life. He commissions him to kingdom work, and he tells him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus is commanding Peter to do the work of a shepherd. And if you know anything about shepherding, you know it's not glamorous. It's pretty thankless. And the sheep keep wandering off. You have to, you have to go get them over and over and over again. And that's what Peter will get to do for believers in the early church. We often think of Paul or even John as some of the great pillars in the early church, but Peter is just as crucial. He wrote two epistles. He was the first missionary to the Gentiles. He powerfully taught and led in several early churches. He performed miracles that authenticated the message of the gospel. Paul himself calls Peter a pillar of the church in his letter to the Galatians. And one theologian said of Peter's calling that he might not write or think like John. He might not voyage and adventure like Paul, but he had the great honor and the lovely task of being the shepherd of the sheep of Christ. This job as a shepherd of the flock of Christ is going to come at a great cost to Peter. Jesus tells him right then and there, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and they will carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus is prophesying here that Peter is going to die by crucifixion. It is a death much like the one that Jesus has just suffered. And he tells him this before his ministry has even really begun. This is going to cost him his life. And Peter is going to live with this declaration hanging over his head for more than three decades. For three decades, he will labor in the church and know death is coming. It's coming. I'm going to die for this. And at first blush, this seems like just about the biggest downer ever because Jesus has just restored and established Peter. And then he tells him, this is going to cost you your life. That is not how we think of commissioning services. We send them off with well wishes and we tell them, it's going to be great and God's going to use you. Tell me the last time you wrote, good luck, you're going to die on a graduation card. <laughs> or congrats on, your, on the new marriage. It's going to be terrible. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of what this feels like here is that Jesus is saying, yeah, you're going to do this amazing thing and you're going to die for it. But he'll belong to Christ in life and in death. And he'll belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to him. Peter, or Petros in Greek, literally means little rock. And he will play a pivotal role in building the church of Christ. And Peter actually says of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 2.6 on your verse sheet, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. A cornerstone is the support of the entire building. It provides strength and stability to the rest of the building, and that is what Jesus is for the church. And so picture Peter, this little rock, laid safely on the cornerstone Jesus. Peter need not fret over his life or what it's going to cost him or how this is all going to shake out because he belongs to Peter or to Jesus. 
he is laid on the cornerstone. He is safe there. And he is a part of the flock that he will shepherd. And the chief shepherd is Jesus. Peter has nothing to be afraid of. So for some of us tonight, we need to answer the question, do you love me? And it has been a question, I remember the moment in my life that I answered it, that I, I literally had someone ask me, do you love the Lord? Are you going to submit your life to him? And I remember where I was standing when I said, yeah, I guess I got to leave the rest of the things behind because I do love him and nothing can compete with that love. And I've been praying for weeks that all of our answers would be a resounding yes. And for others, we need to count the cost. Following Jesus will not cost most of us our lives. We will not be killed because we bear his name. But it does not mean that it won't cost us and that it won't hurt sometimes. Following Jesus may mean forfeiting a lifestyle or a habit or a pattern of yours. It could cost you friendships, status, money, all sorts of things. You may have to lay down to follow Jesus. There are things that I can no longer watch or listen to or be a part of, places I cannot go because I've submitted my life to Christ. And I certainly don't want to imply here a legalistic spirit of I can do this, you can't, so you can't do this, don't go here, don't do this, don't watch that. That's not at all what I'm saying. We cannot earn merit or favor with God based on what we do or do not do. But there is a cost to following Jesus. And it often costs us way more than we bargained for at the outset. But it is worth it. Following Jesus is worth it because we belong to him and he belongs to us. The God of the universe has called us to himself and has given us his spirit. We possess nothing of greater value than that. And it cannot be taken from us. And we're also already as good as dead. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20 on your verse sheet that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We are already dead, and we have nothing to lose that's really worth anything. Our entire lives can shout, yes, Lord, we love you, because we've counted the cost. And we know that nothing, nothing surpasses the beauty and the glory of knowing Jesus. Jesus totally transformed Peter's life, fully forgiving and restoring him from incredible failure. And he can and he will do the same for us as we entrust our lives to him. I think Peter knew this so deeply because he wrote in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter knew. This was his story. And it's ours, too. Pray with me. 
God, you are more merciful than we ever dared to dream. You are steadfast and slow to anger. You abound in love. And so would we be women who are not ashamed to bring our failures to you, who are not ashamed of where we've fallen short, but who run to you because we're expectant that you'll be merciful to us. We're expectant of how you, you will redeem those parts of our stories to bring glory to yourself. Thank you for the tenderness of Jesus' gaze on Peter's face that assures us of that same tenderness on ours. And would you strengthen us to be women who do, are not satisfied to just give you lip service, but who eagerly entrust our lives to you. And so when you ask, do you love me, will we give a sure, yes, Lord, I love you. And when you call us and you say, follow me, will we make haste to obey. We ask all of these things in the name of Christ, who is indeed risen and alive forever and ever. Amen.